You're to turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 2. We didn't quite get out of chapter 2 together last time. At this point, we have Solomon basically having taken over the throne for David. And Solomon is really embracing his calling at this point, his God-given destiny. And that's important certainly for all of us to do as followers of the Lord. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that we're to walk worthy of the calling in which we have received. And certainly we have all received a calling to follow Christ, to live for Christ. But more than that, God also puts callings upon our lives. He gives us unique things that he intends for us to do. The Bible tells us in Ephesians as well that uh, that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. In other words, one of the reasons God saved you specifically, one of the reasons God saved me specifically, wasn't just to change my eternal destiny, wonderful as that is, but it also was that until we live on this earth, until our time is done, is God actually uniquely saved you with the intention in his mind that there were certain good works that he could accomplish through your life as an individual believer, ways in which he could use you, things that he could utilize your life to accomplish and to fulfill for his purposes. And Solomon, one of the clear callings upon his life was to build the temple of God that was in David's heart actually to construct. Remember, God gave David the revelation, the blueprints, gave to David Uh, really pretty much everything in light of the temple. Uh, David made preparations. He made plans. He's put together everything that was necessary. The only thing God forbid David to do is actually construct it because God didn't want one whose hands were involved in bloodshed and war to be the one to construct his house and temple. He wanted someone who would be a man of peace, and that's really what more Solomon's reign was classified uh, by. He was a man of, of peace, and his reign had more tranquility in it than the time of David. So Solomon now is making preparations. He's moving forward. Uh, We're told at the beginning of chapter two that he determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal house for himself. He then began to assemble a workforce. And we left off last time in chapter two, went down as far as verse 11, where Solomon, it said, had sent to Hiram, the king of Tyre, telling him that he was about to construct this house for God, this temple that they might worship and offer sacrifices unto Yahweh God. And he was requesting sort of a a business contract almost. He was seeking from the king of Tyre that he would send to him uh, individuals who were skillful in work, those who could work in different forms of of tapestry, those who who could uh, handle metalworking and woodworking. He also made requests as well. We saw there in verse 8 that there from the area of Tyre would be sent to him what they were famous for, the cedar and cypress and algum logs from Lebanon, Uh, these massive trees that would grow there, some eight to nine foot in diameter, 100 foot uh, tall, so almost imagine 10 stories trees eight to nine foot in diameter and the cedars of Lebanon as well as the cypress and algum logs that area was famous for that and he said look can you have some of your skilled men I'll send my servants to you prepare and send me this timber so that I can use this for the construction process that he wanted to perform and he promised in light of that that he would make sure to fairly compensate uh, his servants uh, with great amounts it said uh, of wheat and uh, barley 
barley and uh, vast amounts of wine and olive oil, things that Israel was famous for. And we left off with the response now of Hiram to this letter that was written uh, by Solomon to him requesting these things. So verse 12, we pick it up there. It says, Hiram also said, after a brief greeting to Solomon in verse 11, he said to him, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, for he has given King David a wise son, endowed, he says, with prudence and understanding who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal house for himself. And we saw last time how as Solomon was in the midst of worshiping the Lord and just, again, really just dedicating his life over to the Lord in a very purposeful way, that it was in the midst of that that God grants to Solomon this incredible opportunity. We saw in chapter 1 that God said to Solomon in the midst of his worship as he was dedicating his heart to God, Solomon asked, what shall I give you? Uh, and when someone's heart is fully consecrated to the Lord and their heart is fully dedicated to the Lord, God sees that as a safe person to give that kind of an opportunity to because he knew that Solomon wasn't going to ask for something of his own self-benefit or that would give advantage to him, but really that he would ask what would be pleasing to the Lord and what would help him to fulfill God's purposes. And that's exactly what Solomon asked. Remember that God would give him wisdom and understanding so that he would be able to care for God's people and carry out God's purposes. And Solomon admitted, again, remember, as we said at this point, Solomon is perhaps at this time chronologically maybe late, late teenage years, 18, 19, maybe at the most upwards to his early 20s as he steps into this role as a successor of the king of Israel and now has this incredible seven-year building project it will take him to build this temple for God. So he realizes his inadequacy and that he lacked experience and understanding and God blessed him. Uh, with his answer that give him great wisdom as well as we saw other things as well that he didn't ask for. And here, Hiram already recognizing this, that he was a wise young man endowed by God. Notice it wasn't natural. His wisdom was God-given. It was supernatural. Again, and the Bible tells us that God has all wisdom. He's the all-wise God. And James 1 even promises you and I as believers that God says to us, if you lack wisdom, ask. And God will give freely to us wisdom. Again, not worldly wisdom, but his wisdom, spiritual wisdom, wisdom that comes from the ways of God and the understandings of God, a wisdom that's supernaturally imparted. And, and I genuinely believe that God can do that. I have met some people who are incredibly intelligent, and yet they're utter fools, highly educated, and they have great intelligence, and yet they live their lives foolishly. They live their lives wastefully and they behave and conduct themselves in ways that though they have great intelligence and a high intellect capacity, the way they live out their lives, which is what wisdom is, making good choices and how you use knowledge in everyday practices and common sense and making of decisions, and they live very foolishly. Now, by the same token, I know people who may not be you know, highly educated. They may not even be the most book smart or intelligent people, and yet they're very, very wise. And they live very wise lives, and they have great wisdom in regards to how they handle their affairs and situations and relationships, and thus is what Solomon received. He's a young man. He doesn't have much life experience, but God gave him supernatural wisdom, 
wisdom from God himself to have prudence and understanding, which would be very helpful not only in leading the nation as a young man, but now in building and constructing this temple for the Lord. And Hiram commends him for that. He says to him, verse 13, in light of his request for a skilled craftsman, his answer, verse 13, he says, and now I have sent to you a skillful man endowed with understanding, Huram. Now notice a different individual. This isn't the king himself, but a man named Huram, similar name. My master craftsman. He's the son of a woman of the daughter of Dan, which means he had a Israelite mother. Yet his father, he says, was a man of Tyre. So he, this young uh, individual, uh, Huram, actually came from a mixed marriage. And again, remember, the, the border of Israel and Lebanon, very close to one another. So you basically have someone who had a father who was non-Israeli, a mother who was an Israelite from a mixed marriage. And yet the Bible tells us of this individual that he was skilled, verse 14, notice, to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, that is, God gave him special aptitude to work with metals, as well as he was skillful, it says, to work with iron and stone and wood. So he was a gifted craftsman, a woodworker with great skill and capacity, as well as working with purple and blue. Now, this is working with fabrics. Uh, the ability to handle different types of, you know, fabric work and, and uh, what do you call when somebody works with fabrics? Is there a word for that? Seamstress? Something like that? It sounds a little feminine for a guy. But uh, nonetheless, he had all these different capacities and notice to accomplish any plan that may be given to him with your skillful men and the skillful men of my Lord David, your father. So, I love, I love to see this, that the Bible actually takes note of that there are individuals who actually have certain aptitudes and skill from God that may not necessarily be things that they're, again, you know, maybe successful in business or a leader in this way, but they're just hands-on individuals who have practical skills they're, they can work with wood. They're master craftsmen. That's what this guy is referred to in verse 13, a skillful individual with understanding who is a master craftsman working with fabrics and stone and woodworking and different forms of metal and these kind of things. And again, and he's given those capacities to fulfill God's purposes. And he uses those skills and those capacities to help build this temple for the Lord. And basically, it says to accomplish any plan which would be given to him by the king. And what a wonderful thing to realize God can use anything. Whatever your skills or your capacities are, God can redeem and sanctify and use whatever your skills are, whether they're secretarial, whether it's woodworking, whether it's plumbing, whether it's computer skills, whatever your aptitudes and abilities are that God has given to you, don't think they're any less helpful to the work of God's purposes. Because listen, uh, it, at this time, Solomon didn't say, can you send me a preacher? Because look, a preacher wasn't going to build the temple, right? He's I got to build something. Send me somebody that knows how to handle tools. Send me somebody with some skills and understanding how to do practical work who is a craftsman in a way where they have aptitudes to do things that are helpful to accomplish the plan because this is what God's work was. And again, at this point, it's going to be seven years of a lot of really practical work. 
servanthood kind of stuff. And as I look at this building of God's temple and the time it took and all the hundreds of thousands of people it took, the majority of what they're doing is all just hands-on work, grunt labor, bearing burdens, quarrying stones. And it reminds me, you know, so often, folks, the majority of the work that happens in God's house and in God's ministry and God's work, the majority of it is really just laborious. It's just hands-on, practical stuff, being willing to roll up your sleeves and do things. I've met, you know, too many people over the years, those who may have even an aptitude to teach or lead music or whatever, and nothing makes me sadder when I find individuals like that who they love to teach, but they don't want to serve. And there's something very backwards about that. You You have to be willing to be a servant to have the opportunity to teach. And a lot of God's work is just practical servanthood. Some of the greatest assets to the work of God's kingdom and the work of God's house are just people who are willing to just be servants, do practical hands-on stuff. And we're going to see here, look at the numbers that were necessary to build this house. Verse 15 says, Now therefore the wheat, the barley, the oil and the wine which my Lord has spoken of, let him send to his servants. In other words, he says, Okay, I'm agreeing to your compensation package Uh, the, the different supplies you said that you would give to my servants for the work of helping you. And he says, verse 16, we will cut wood from Lebanon as much as you need. And look what happens, says we will bring it to you in rafts by the sea to Joppa and you will then carry it up to Jerusalem. So basically what they do is they cut down these massive logs, these cedars of Lebanon, these cypress and algum trees, And then they float the wood, the logs that are cut down from the forest, they float them down the sea from up in Lebanon, they float them down south till they come to the area of the seaport of Joppa, and then from Joppa, they then have to haul them inland from the seaport of Joppa, which is the closest seaport, over to the area of Jerusalem, which is about a 35-mile journey. So they float them down by sea, they get to the seaport, and then he says, you're going to have to then carry them the 35-mile journey from there over to Jerusalem. And Solomon, verse 17, here's those numbers I was speaking about, numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census in which David, his father, had numbered them, and they were found to be 153,600. And he made 70,000 of them bearers of burdens and 80,000 stonecutters in the mountains. You can picture those numbers. This is what it was taken to build this temple over a seven-year process. 70,000 individuals who were bearers of burdens and 80,000 individuals, it says, who were stonecutters in the mountains. So 80,000 men out in the mountains cutting and quarrying stone, and keep in mind, without power tools. How were they doing that? It's called hard work, right? <laughs> I, I just sometimes I'm mesmerized. I'm sure you, you maybe you go into like an old church or something like that, and you just see this incredible. I'm not saying that it's necessary to have these beautiful ornate buildings, but sometimes I just go into an older church facility sometimes, and you see this incredible woodworking, or you go to maybe somewhere like Philadelphia and see an old building or whatever, and you see the you know the the stonework and the things that were done, and you're th- and you're thinking about how old does you think. They didn't have power tools back then. How did they do that kind of stuff? I mean, the skill and the time and the effort and the labor it must have took 
to do that, the dedication and the gorgeous, incredible things that were done. And so you have 80,000 men quarrying stone, another 70,000. Look, their job was strictly to bear burdens. In other words, they cut the stone and then these guys probably just hauled the stone (laughs) from where they were in the mountains. Imagine that way. What's your calling? I'm a burden bearer. So what do you do for the Lord? Um, I carry rocks from the mountain over to the temple mount where we're building the temple me and you know 10 12 20 other guys you know we just with ropes we just drag you know these massive rocks into the those who are there assembling and put them in places again how god uses all things and notice a very minimal amount 3600 overseers verse 18 says to make the people work <laughs> you always need some of them Right? You do need some leaders, some overseers. That's the idea of supervisors. You've got to make sure those people bear the burdens and cut the stones. So there was 3,600 who were basically supervisors. Chapter 3 tells us, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. Now, take notice. Chapter 2, verse 1, look at it. It says, Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. In chapter two, he determines to do it. In chapter three, he actually begins the work and actually starts. I think there's something very good as an insightful reminder there to us. You know, it's one thing to determine to do something for God. It's another thing to actually get active and start doing it. And in the spiritual life, whatever it may be, whether it's something God's speaking to us about in our own Christian life, maybe to just, you know, grow in our spiritual maturity, maybe start reading our Bible more, start praying more, maybe start getting more actively engaged in in church, or maybe it's, you know, serving the Lord in some way, or maybe it is something God asks us to do to serve him, some form of ministry, whatever it may be. In spiritual life, it is not enough for us just to be stirred We have to act. James says to us, remember, don't just be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word and thereby deceive yourself spiritually. And, and, you know, if you look throughout church history and and just the journey of, of people's spiritual lives, there are multitudes and multitudes of people who were stirred and yet never changed. They go to a church service. They hear God speak to them and they're stirred and they determine, you know what, I'm gonna repent of that sin. I just, I'm done with this. And I'm determined. I am not going to do that anymore. I need to repent. I need to stop doing that. And they determine to do it. But then they never start the process of repentance. They never begin repenting and turning away and doing whatever's necessary to clear that sinful habit or issue out of their life and deal with it. Or there are people, you know, we go to a Bible, maybe a con- you know, a conference, a men's conference or a women's conference. We, we determine, hey, when I come back, right? I mean, who has a When I come back, I'm going to, and we have all these spiritual ideas and we make all these determinations, but then we never begin. We never do anything. So important. Solomon didn't just determine what he was going to do. At a certain point, he actually put it into practice. Great reminder for us that we would put into practice that which we know God has told us to do in the different areas of our spiritual life from time to time. So Solomon began to build the house of the Lord. And where did he do it? Verse three or verse one says at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, very important place in the Bible. Mount Moriah is known as the Mount of Sacrifice for good reason. 
It says that was where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. This is where the Temple Mount was, where the temple ultimately was built by Solomon there on Mount Moriah. And remember, Mount Moriah, Genesis chapter 22, the first time it shows up as an important place, it's the place where Abraham travels up the mountain with the intention of obeying God and sacrificing his son that he dearly loved, Isaac. And you remember the picture, it says that Isaac carried the wood and he obeyed and submitted to his father. And the father was going to put him to death, believing that if he obeyed God in that way, that God was then going to resurrect him from the dead. And it's, it's this whole picture of Jesus and how then God stopped him. And God said, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided that God would provide Jehovah Jireh. And of course, the whole thing was a picture of how Abraham, in the same way you were about to sacrifice your son and I stopped you, one day I'm going to sacrifice my own son and the wood of the cross will be upon his back. And, but yet I won't stop. And, I'll, and ultimately, that became the same location where Jesus ultimately there on Mount Moriah is also the pinnacle of it. A little further up is a place called Calvary where Jesus ultimately ends up being sacrificed by the Father in heaven for our sins so that we could be forgiven. It's also the place we're told here that David had sacrificed and bought the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Remember that story back in First Chronicles? We saw it not that long ago where a plague came upon the people because of the sin among the land. And David was told by the Lord to go and purchase the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and to erect an altar and to make a sacrifice there. And the plague would then be stopped. And David goes and Ornan says, look, just take it. You can have the piece of ground. You can have the, you know, the animals to sacrifice and all the wood and everything you need. And says, David says, no, no, I'm not going to offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. If this doesn't have any measure of sacrifice, then it's meaningless. And David pays full price. And there he builds an altar and he sacrifices to God. And as he sacrifices to God, the plague is stopped. And how very interesting, this is the place Ultimately, we're on this same mountain where in a greater degree, a sacrifice would be offered and a greater plague would be stopped, the plague of sin that was destroying humanity. And it's this place where God determined that the temple would be built in Jerusalem. This sacred place of sacrifice and bloodshed where a plague was turned away from humanity ultimately and their eternal destiny could be changed. It's this place that was chosen by God in Jerusalem to build the temple. And verse 2 says, He began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Now that's probably around 967 BC. The fact that it says that he started on in the fourth year of his reign doesn't mean I don't think that he delayed. It's very likely what it's an indication of two things. One, remember David and Solomon kind of co-reigned for a time until his father died, as well as the fact that as we read in chapter two, it probably took some time to bring down all of that wood and cedar and algum and cypress logs from Lebanon down the sea, lug it across the 35 miles to Jerusalem, plus to quarry all that stone, to drag all that stone. So there was a lot of preparation work that was going on to get things ready before the actual construction and building could take place. Chapter uh, 3, verse 3 says, And this is the foundation 
which Solomon had laid for the building of the house of God. The length was 60 cubits, according to the former measure, and the width, 20 cubits. Now, again, just a reminder, in that day, the typical cubit measurement for the Hebrew was about the dimension, typically they would say from about the elbow to the top of your finger. So it was about 18 inches or about a foot and a half. So whenever you read a cubit in the Bible, you can pretty much just multiply that times one and a half feet or 1.5. So when he says here, the foundation of the temple proper, the, the, the dimensions of it, the, basically the temple, the length was 60 cubits. So that would mean 90 foot long. He says as well that the width of it was 20 cubits so that would be 30 foot wide and we'll see as well we know from again the counts in first kings some of these things i'll be saying tonight again are things that are still in our minds from first kings where we have the other account of the building of the temple the temple that was built by solomon was 90 foot long 30 foot wide and about 45 foot high so it kind of gives you a picture about 2700 square foot not a real big building But keep in mind, the temple itself, when it was built, was not necessarily built to house and accommodate all the congregation to come inside of it. The congregation assembled more in the courtyard area, not necessarily inside the building. They would come to the temple grounds in the temple courtyard. Now, as we look at the temple, let me just say one or two things in regards to reminding ourselves and whether we address these things this evening uh, or as we go through this, just again as a reminder for you as you're pondering these things, maybe the Lord by his spirit would show certain things to you as you read or even as you're going back through it yourself. The temple itself in the Old Testament kind of foreshadows or portrays pictures, really kind of three different things we know from a New Testament perspective. The first thing that the tabernacle that Moses built that traveled in the wilderness, as well as the temple portrayed, the New Testament tells us, is that that was a picture of Jesus Christ. And we talked about some of these things when we looked at the tabernacle and we talked about the different furnishings and what the things of the tabernacle represented. And then in 1 Kings as well, when we went through the record there of the building of this same temple, it's repeated here in 2 Chronicles that it pictures many of these things, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. John chapter two tells us that from a New Testament perspective because Jesus referring to himself and his body says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. So we know the temple pictures and symbolizes aspects of Jesus and his work. It also, the temple is also secondly, a picture of the individual believer. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So each believer now indwelt with the Holy Spirit, God's presence dwells inside of us as a believer, just like God's presence was manifest in the temple. Our bodies are now considered to be individual temples of God, temples of the Spirit. And thirdly, the temple also at times pictures the church collectively. Again, 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, these passages refer to how we as individual Christians joined together as the church body are all like living stones that make up a temple of God in which God manifests his presence amongst us as the church, as his temple now on this earth. So keep those things in mind, and we'll make some inferences of this as we go through this but again we have this structure 90 foot by 30 foot by about 45 foot high now uh, for sake of helping a little bit i have a couple pictures for you here just to give you some visual references 
Um, and then we'll just kind of go through this, but just so you kind of have some of this in your mind, I know it kind of helps a little bit. These are artist renderings, and I always say that because don't ever consider perfect an artist rendering of something in the Bible. Uh, but maybe to give us an idea of kind of from the outward appearance, what the temple itself may have looked like. That's kind of an idea from the outside. You can see the, you know, made of stone with the pillars in the front, and we'll talk about the altar and the, the laver, the sea where they would wash from. You can go to the next one, Kath. This is kind of a side view, so you can kind of see the temple, again, as a reminder, beyond the porch was basically broken up into two different compartments. The first larger room when you went in was the holy place, which is where the priests would go in and do their ministry and so forth at the altar of incense and the lampstand and the tables of showbread and so forth. And then the rear room, uh, which was always a cube, was referred to as the most holy place or the holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was where the high priest would go in once a year and apply the blood of atonement there at the ark and that was separated remember the two rooms by the veil uh, basically because they weren't allowed to have direct access only the high priest once a year into the place where God's powerful and holy presence was manifested that kind of gives you a side cut and then here's just a last few and we'll just leave this one up as we go through this if you want to glance at it once in a while it kind of gives you a general idea of what some of this uh, might look like as we go through it together. So if you get bored, you can look at the picture and ignore me. Look at verse four, if you want to. The vestibule, it says, that was in the front of the sanctuary was 20 cubits. The width of it uh, was uh, long across the house and the height was 120 and overlaid the outside with pure gold. So this is kind of the porch area you can see there in the front that's being referred to. Verse five refers to the larger room, which would be the holy place, the first room when you entered into the temple uh, structure itself. And that was paneled with cypress, which he then overlaid with fine gold. And then he carved in that gold, it says palm trees and chain work on it. And he decorated, verse six, the house of God with precious stones for beauty. So imagine overlaid with gold and then precious stones on top of that, the glistening that would take place inside. And it says, and the gold was the gold from Parvavim. And he also overlaid the house, the beams, the doorposts, its walls, and its doors with gold, and he carved cherubim on the walls. Again, the carving of cherubim were the angelic creatures. And again, so in the heavenly realm, the angelic creatures, the angelic beings are all around the presence of God, always worshiping. But it is interesting, notice everything being overlaid with gold and precious stones, uh, gems and so forth in there. But consider again, even as you contemplate just the initial description, you have the outer part of the temple that is made of stone, right? Very common, very ordinary. That's what the outside looks like. But on the interior, everything is overlaid with beautiful, brilliant gold and the light in the temple shining and radiating off of the gold walls and gold ceiling and gold floors. What a picture and a reminder again of the person of Jesus, right? Because Jesus outwardly was basically like an ordinary man. Isaiah 53 uh, tells that there's, there's nothing about him that really would attract us to him. So Jesus was just a normal man. He was a human being. Outwardly, just like the temple, he just was ordinary. But inwardly, gold representing deity in the Bible, inwardly, Jesus radiated with all the glory of God. 
and the divinity that was within him inside of his humanity and those two being one and what a beautiful way represented even as the temple itself outwardly just kind of normal inwardly all the great glory in a picture of how Jesus himself was in some ways manifested verse 8 tells us and then the most holy place that is the rear room often called the holy of holies as well its length was according to the width of the house 20 cubits and the width 20 cubits so again it was a 30 by 30 room twice the size of what the tabernacle holy of holies was that was 15 by 15 this was 30 by 30 and as well he overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold and the weight of the nails verse 9 was 50 shekels of gold and he overlaid the upper area with gold as well now i don't think you could drive gold nails i don't know a whole lot about construction i don't have my dad's gifting for being real handy but i don't know how gold being a soft metal you could nail in gold nails so it's probably nails overlaid with gold i'm gonna assume but nonetheless i mean you're talking about extravagant when you're even using nails overlaid with gold no expense spared again the whole idea solomon said from the beginning this is something we're doing for god and it represents god and so solomon wanted to be great and brilliant he didn't want anything to misrepresent god i love his heart in that again the extravagance it wasn't a matter of being extravagant for their sake because listen here's the point gang nobody saw inside of there except for a few priests it wasn't for all the people to come in and go, wow, look at our facility. I mean, it was, that's not what was the heart behind it. It was, God, we want to represent, we want to bless you. It was all for the Lord is why they did this. It was just their heart behind it. Again, keep in mind, the Bible tells us that in heaven, in glory, it says in Revelation, the streets of heaven are paved with gold. Okay? That gives you an idea of the value system in heaven. Think of what we pave our streets with out here, Tilton Road that's asphalt how many people go out to Tilton Road and go wow let's steal some of the asphalt bring it home right? nobody's interested in the asphalt car it's asphalt that's the idea in heaven they go here's how we view materialism we pave our streets with gold because in God's estimation value system isn't on wealth and material things it's on things like people and what's eternal and what really matters and so here just again demonstrating their just their love for god they overlay everything with gold and verse 10 says inside the most holy place he made two cherubim the angelic creatures we see all around the throne of god whenever we see a heavenly scene fashioned by carving and overlaid them with gold the idea is they were made of olive wood we know and then overlaid with gold the structure of olive wood the wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits in length overall one wing of the cherub was five cubits touching the wall of the room the other wing was five cubits and then the two wings touch one another so you can kind of get an idea of these two cherubim that were there over the ark their wingspan went the entire 30 foot from one side of uh, the tabernacle all the way across to the other verse 14 says and he made the veil of blue purple crimson and fine linen and wove cherubim into it now the veil remember was what separated the holy place the first room from the holy of holies the rear room uh, and the veil itself was basically to be a reminder to the people that you could not just directly have access into the awesome holy 
incredible presence of God, that you couldn't just trivially just march right into God's presence, that there was, in a sense, restriction there. Only remember one time a year, one man, the high priest himself, with the blood of atonement could go behind the veil and apply blood to atone for the sins of the world on the day of atonement and have access into God's presence. And if he went back there and even oopsied, He'd die on the spot in God's presence. They had to drag him back out. So that veil was just a reminder. You, you could not, and, and the Jews understood this, you could not just casually, brazenly, anybody just, well, I'm just going to walk into God's presence. And it's a good, in the same way that it is utter lunacy for people to think, well, I can just enter heaven. No, you can't. You have to be prepared to enter heaven. You can't just have direct access into heaven, into God's... God is a holy, awesome God. And so that veil was that reminder, that restrictive barrier that was there to them that you could only approach God on God's terms. Notice the veil itself. And notice the veil, in many ways, pictures aspects of Christ. Notice the blue. Blue was the color of heaven. And Jesus was the eternal heavenly son of God. Purple is the color of royalty. And Jesus was the king of kings. It says the veil also had crimson in it. And that speaks of the, the blood of Christ, the crimson red blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And the fine linen, that is white clean linen, spoke of the righteousness of Christ and the righteous life of Christ that was offered on our behalf so that we could receive his righteousness and all those things in the veil in many ways representative of Christ. It's interesting that Hebrews chapter 10 even speaks to us of this reality telling us that Jesus himself ultimately went into the, the holy of holies in heaven and applied his blood that was shed to make eternal atonement once for all for our sins. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. It says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter now the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know, the Bible ultimately says that that veil, which remember when Jesus died, the temple that existed in that day, here's temple. It says, remember that the temple, when Jesus died, that the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. What was God doing? God was taking away the, the barrier saying, now through what Jesus did, every human being will have direct access to me through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through the blood that was shed that atoned for sins once for all. And there's now direct access. Again, the veil tore from top to bottom. Wasn't no priest up there on top of a, you know, 27 foot extension ladder with a big razor. No, that was God rending the veil miraculously from top to bottom, ripping it apart, showing that Jesus' body in a sense was the veil that was torn to give us access into God's presence. And then verse 15 down through verse 17 speak to us of the two pillars and if you look in our drawing here again you can see one's obviously cut off to the left but to the right there the pillar that was outside those two pillars that were there ornate in their decoration but those two pillars that were set up look at verse 17 it says that they both had a name it says the one on the right hand was called Jachin and the one on the left 
was called Boaz. Jacob means he shall establish. Boaz means he shall strengthen. So whenever you went to the temple of God, there were these two pillars, each with a name. One said, he shall establish. The other said, he shall strengthen. And they were a reminder to the people, again, of what God wanted to do in his house. A reminder to us that that's exactly who and what Jesus does for us as a picture of the temple. It's Jesus who establishes our spiritual lives, who establishes our spiritual standing. And it's Jesus who strengthens us as we go to him. It's Jesus who established the house of God. It's Jesus who established the church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And Jesus is the one who strengthens the church. And as the temple is a picture in some ways of the church collectively, I think it's a reminder too of what when people come to the house of God, when the temple of the Lord assembles, when God's people come together collectively for worship at the house of God, that's what should predominantly be happening. When people come to the house of God, they should be established spiritually, not entertained, established spiritually, be more steadfast and rooted in their faith, and they should be strengthened spiritually, built up, strengthened spiritually to go back out into the world to be strong in the Lord and that's really what should be happening whenever we approach and come into God's house even today. Well, chapter 4 then refers to us regarding the uh, furnishings on the outside. The first one that we read there, verse 1, is that he made a bronze altar 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in his width and 10 cubits high. So that bronze altar was the first thing you'd see as you come in. You can see it in our picture there over to the right. And that bronze altar, pretty extensive in size, it actually was 20 cubits by 20 cubits, so 30 foot by 30 foot, and then it says it was 15 foot high. And probably the reason it was elevated was so that the people, even from a distance, could see the sacrifices actually being offered. Remember, as you first came into the temple, it's interesting, the first thing that the people saw was the altar where sacrifice was made. And I think that's very fitting because the first thing you encountered as you came to the house of God was an altar of sacrifice where there was the shedding of innocent blood, where the animals that were sacrificed, the sin offerings, the burnt offerings, the fellowship offerings, where they would be offered as an act of worship given over to God. And so again, the, the temple, the first reminder as you came, this is a place of worship and sacrifice where the sacrifice and shedding of blood gives you the opportunity to be able to worship God. And that's the only reason that we can offer to God an acceptable sacrifice. The Bible tells us now in the book of Hebrews that we're to offer to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks on him. We don't have to come to the temple anymore with our ox or our sheep. There was a sacrifice, the lamb of God slain for the sins of the world once for all. And because of that sacrifice and Jesus dying on the altar and shedding his blood, we can now offer to God the sacrifice of worship. Our hearts being sacrificially given over to God as we praise him and sing to him and express our devotion to him. The second thing you'd see over, as you can tell to the left in your drawing, is also the sea of cast bronze. And that was 10 cubits from one brim to the other, so 15 foot from one brim to the other. Its length or height was five cubits and a line of 30 cubits around the circumference. And underneath of it, verse three and four tell us 
that it sat upon a group of, of molded oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three oxen facing south and three toward the east, and the sea was set upon them and their back parts pointed inward. That's important to know, right? Much better to be to see the face of an ox than the backside of an ox, I guess. Kept you from smirking in the temple, probably. Verse 5 says, And it was a handbreadth thick, and its rim, a brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom, and it contained 3,000 baths. Now, that's, if you equate that out, that's about 24,000 gallons of water. This, this huge, it's referred to here as a sea because it was a big basin of water. Now, beyond that basin of water, verse 6 says, he also made 10 lavers. These were the smaller basins you see that were on wheels, five on each side. And it says, they were to use to wash in such things as they offered for the burnt offering and they would wash in them. But the sea, verse 6 says, was for the priests to wash in. So, the smaller lavers that five on each side that were on wheels that were mobile moved around they were used to basically wash off the sacrifices before they were put on the fire of the altar as they would slaughter the animals you can imagine there was a lot of bloodshed people had a regard for blood because they understood something innocent died and they watched the life bleed out of an animal and they realized this is the cost of our sin because I was selfish. This animal's throat just had to be slit and its blood had to pour out and they watched and they saw these things and people had a real strong impression in their mind that sin wasn't a trivial thing as they watched. And so they would then wash the sacrifice and the mobile labors they would move around and then the priests would have to wash in the large basin. They would utilize that before they would perform their duties or after they would accomplish their work they would use that that was exclusively for the priest to wash and of course that speaks in many ways the the water and the basins there i believe of the the washing and the cleansing of the water of god's word the bible in the new testament speaks of how jesus said you're already clean because of the word which i spoke to you ephesians 5 talks about the washing of the water of the word and when we come to god's house it is the washing of God's word that cleanses us and allows us to keep ourselves in a right place as we worship the Lord and serve the Lord. You know, we kind of incur filth and dirt from the world as we're going in and out. And we need the constant washing of the water of God's word to wash our minds and to just wash over our lives and cleanse us and renew our minds and give us a right perspective. And that's what keeps us in a way where our hearts are acceptable and that we can continue to serve God you know, with a clean life. And so the priests and ministers had to wash themselves. Again, a good picture of what God's word does. We're also told in verse 7 and 8 that he made 10 lampstands. Remember the golden candlestick, the menorah that was in the original tabernacle? In the temple, there was actually 10 of them. And then 10 tables of showbread. And there was five on each side, the Bible tells us here. Now, the artist's rendering, for some reason, shows the lampstands. But for some reason, I don't know why he didn't put the uh, tables in there. But it says in the text here that there was actually five on each side of the table of showbread and the tan lampstands. Again, everything was done much more extensively in the temple, even in the tabernacle. Verse 9 describes how then there was a court of the priests, that is the courtyard area outside where the priests would be walking around except for when they would go inside to do their work. Verse 11 says, And then Horam made the pots and the shovels and the bowls 
and he finished doing the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of God. I love that. Whenever you take on anything that you do for God, for God's house, for the king, not Solomon, the king of kings, Jesus, don't just start things, finish things. I love to read in the word of God. Again, remember, the ultimate example of that is Jesus. Jesus endured and sacrificed and did way more obediently than you and I ever did. And Jesus' dying breath, he said, it is finished. Father, I finished the work you've given me to do. And this man, Horam, as he was doing all these practical tasks and constructing these things, it says he finished doing the work that he was to do for the king. What has God given you to do for him? Finish it. Don't leave things undone that God asks you to do. God asks you to talk to somebody, help somebody, stay on task with that person. Finish it. God asks you to do something for him. Finish it. Be faithful. Carry to completion those things that God puts upon you in the things that he wants you to do for him. Well, verse 12 tells us then, I'm sure you're very interested of all the different things that were built and constructed and how they were decorated. Verse 14, notice he made carts and lavers and he made, again, the 12 oxen. It sort of reiterates, look at verse 15, the pots and the shovels. And you think your ministry for the Lord is bad. This guy's building pots and shovels. Again, all the different articles. Verse 17 says, In the plain of Jordan the king had cast in clay molds, that's where they did these things, between Sukkoth and Zareth. And Solomon had all these articles made in such great abundance that the weight of the bronze was not determined. And Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of God, verse 19, the altar of gold, the tables, which was the showbread, the lampstands were made of pure gold to burn the prescribed manner in front of the inner sanctuary with the flowers and lamps and wick trimmers and the trimmers and bowls and the ladles, interesting, and the censers of pure gold. As for the entry of the sanctuary and its doors in the most holy place, the doors of the main hall of the temple were also of gold. So interesting, even the doors themselves overlaid with gold, and it seems to be a reference that between the holy place and the most holy place in the rear, there was not only a curtain, but also doors in the temple. In the tabernacle, there was just a veil. In the temple, it seems, they had doors as well as a veil also. Now, uh, before we conclude, and take a deep breath, you're thinking that was the most boring details of Bible study ever, but nonetheless, look with me if you would before we conclude and enter back into worship, back up into verse 18. Notice, it says there, Solomon had all these articles made in great abundance and the weight of bronze, some things were made of bronze, was not determined. That is, there was so much utilization of bronze, so much bronze was required, they could not even determine and factor in how much it actually cost in the bronze work. Now, that's interesting because bronze in the Bible was always a metal that infers and represents judgment. And you know, in some ways, I think it is just a good reminder to us as we think about Jesus and how the temple reflects Jesus and they could not determine the amount of bronze. Let us always remember that the measure of sacrifice and the wrath of the judgment of God that came upon Jesus will never be able to fully determine on this earth how severe the judgment was that he suffered on our behalf and that we escaped. And he 
endured incredible judgment. So by faith alone, we can have direct access to God through what Jesus did for us. Amazing, amazing grace. Let's stand together. Let's pray.